Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Dr. Denson Paul Pollard is a force of nature. The omnipresent trombonist with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra is also an esteemed professor of music at Indiana University and has occupied prominent positions with orchestras on three continents. His successful career is all the more astonishing given his humble roots growing up in rural Georgia, where he never had a formal lesson and wasn't even aware that playing the trombone in an orchestra was a profession he could pursue. If I can go from the way I grew up in the place that I grew up to playing in Carnegie Hall, it is possible for it to happen for anybody because the two worlds could not be further apart. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, the podcast that explores the art of artistry. I'm your host, David Krauss, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. As a musician in New York City, I get to perform with some of the world's greatest artists every night. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with these inspiring performers as we lift the veil on talent to hear about their process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. Just after you joined the orchestra, we were walking together from Lincoln Center to go play a concert at Carnegie Hall. And you stopped and you said in your thick Georgia accent, I can't believe I'm crossing 57th Street to go play at Carnegie Hall. Do you remember this? I do remember. Uh, it was a profound moment for me playing my first concert in Carnegie Hall and realizing I was crossing uh, over streets and entering a building that the giants of our industry had played in before me. And it's, it's something that I don't take for granted to this moment. I'm a member of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, maybe one of the greatest and most storied arts organizations in the world. And I, I get to do this for my living. I get to provide for my family and get to play some of the greatest works of art that have ever been created here in New York City. And you said that was your first time playing Carnegie Hall. It was my first time to be in Carnegie Hall when we rehearsed there. What was that like, not only walking into Carnegie Hall the first time, but playing on the stage for the first time? 
It was incredible. The sound is wonderful. Visually, it is, it's a stunning venue. And I'm a person that loves history. I'm aware of history of, uh, if, I, if I go to a new place, I generally try to read up a little bit about what's happened there. And, you know, I was, I was completely aware of the incredible history of that space and get, getting to be there and play there was, was amazing. My children would go to sleep every night with Glenn Gould playing the Goldberg Variations. And I was very aware that Glenn Gould would practice on the stage of Carnegie Hall. And I think he recorded the Goldberg Variations twice off the stage of Carnegie Hall. I was completely aware of all of that. So being there for the first time rehearsing and then performing, I, I understood. So maybe I shouldn't have made fun of you when you were crossing <laughs> the 7th Street? No, you, that's, it was a... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I, I won't say it wasn't a little bit, the the way that musicians in New York City relate to each other, the way New Yorkers relate to each other, uh, it took me a little while to kind of understand that dynamic. You know, my, I have to say my first reaction was to punch people in the face occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I figured out how people interact and what that energy is like. And uh, so, no, it, it's, it's, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And <laughs> It was all in good fun. Yeah, and it, it remains. I know if you didn't like me, you wouldn't have picked at me a little that, bit. That's true. You're an outlier in our profession. Most of our colleagues start out at a very early age with conservatory training that prepares them to compete for these coveted jobs that you've won and maintained, both teaching and playing. Instead, you began your musical education at Jacksonville State University in Alabama, never having heard an orchestra before. didn't even know that playing an orchestra was a viable vocation. How do you go from there to where you are now? It, that's all correct. I grew up in rural Georgia. Er, early in my life, I played a lot of sports. I played baseball every summer. I grew up playing football. Didn't quite make it to high school sports because I just got to the point where they were just bigger, faster, stronger than I was. Fortunately for me, I had also been coaxed into a, a music trial day at my junior high school. And, and I had no connection to the music world. And I was hesitant. I resisted. But I went in and it was actually a person in different corners of the room with all of the different musical instruments. And then you could try it. I saw the trombone and I thought, wow, this is really cool. I can make this glissy sound that's very unique to my instrument. And and I, I joined band, thankfully, because uh, once the physical part of my life that was slowed while everybody else was getting faster and stronger. I started to focus on music and band. I applied for one school and wanted to do one thing. I just wanted to be a band director. That's, you know, I thought, you know what? I want not to be an orchestral musician, not no. a performer, a band director. I was not even aware that was a profession. It had never entered my mind that that is something that I could do. And let me also add to that. I had no lessons, no trombone lessons until I was a freshman in college. Nothing, nothing about orchestra, opera. Are you kidding? No way. I, I didn't even know what opera was, you know. So the little school in my area that everybody attended if they wanted to be a music educator was Jacksonville State University. And so, again, one, one school with one ambition. I'm going to do that. So I got a great education there. My first trombone teacher, uh, who's still alive, his name is Jim Roberts. He put on a record of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra playing pictures at an exhibition. 
And it just blew my mind. I, I asked him, what is this? You know, and he told me it's this is the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. This is a very famous piece. And this is an orchestra. And I was like, wow, I, I want to do that. This was the day that I started to realize what orchestra was and what this life was about. Did you grow up with classical music in the house? Zero classical music. I grew up with uh, a lot of 70s and 80s pop music, the Eagles, Linda Ronstadt, and country music. You know, I'm from Georgia, and that's kind of a, a staple. You know, if I can go from the way I grew up in the place that I grew up to playing in Carnegie Hall, it is possible for it to happen for anybody because the two worlds could not be further apart. You know, that just reminds me, the other day when we were in the car together, you said, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. What do you mean by that? Well, I just don't know of anyone else that has the path of becoming a band director first, achieving a, a terminal degree in academia. I got a doctorate along the way. I was on the road for two years. It was an Andrew Lloyd Webber show. And we were at a different city each week uh, with a whole bunch of lifelong road musicians. They, it was The whole band was comprised of those kind of people except for me. And again, it was a complete accident that, you know. Yeah, how did you fall into that? And so this was after college, after your undergrad? This was in between my master's degree and my doctorate. Okay. So with one semester left, my student teaching semester for the music ed degree, I had this wild idea. I saw that there was an audition in Iowa, of all places, for bass and tenor trombone in what was then the Cedar Rapids Symphony. So I thought, hey, I could drive to Iowa and take two auditions on the two instruments that I play, and we'll just see what happens. You know, it'd be kind of fun to do that. So I had a, I had a 1980 Toyota Celica with like 175,000 miles on it, and I, I just drove to Iowa. In your busted out car? Driving with no money. And I'm telling you, I had... Only enough money to get there with gas, maybe a little bit to eat. I didn't have money for a hotel. I, I would pull into used car parking lots and sleep in my car. Made my car kind of fit in with the other used cars. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, smart. I drove there and played that audition. And I was the name that they had selected for bass. And the conductor didn't trust the process. He thought, you know, there's been some mistake. Maybe there was a name mix up or something like that because there were some other people at this audition that they assumed were going to win. And so not they, the guy sleeping in his car in a used parking lot. Not that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so they made me come out and play my whole audition again. And the conductors said, well, I guess we got to give him the job. And so they gave the job. I moved to Iowa. I did my student teaching there. And I thought, hey, I'll just do a master's degree as well because the University of Iowa was just right down the road. And then after that master's degree, that is when I wound up going on the road for a couple of years, 1995 to 1997. When I was on the road, we were in a different city each week. We flew on Mondays and we played shows Tuesday through Sunday. And uh, in every city, I would call up the union, if they had a union, and say, who are the trombone players in town? I would just cold call people and say, hey, I'm Paul Pollard. I'm in town with a show. I, could I have a lesson? I would just try to meet as many people as possible and just try to experience as much as possible. Were most people cool with that? Or did you get a lot of... There was a very wide range of yeah. reaction. Because back know? then, you couldn't text somebody or email these are phone calls. There was a wide range of reaction to uh, someone calling them up like that, you know, all the way from, yeah, I'll give you a lesson. It'll be a couple hundred bucks all the way to, you must, you must be young. 
I, I got that several times. Some older player would say, ah, you're, you're a young guy, aren't you? And I was like, well, yeah, I guess so. But uh, I met so many people and that was a, a formative time for sure. We've been working together for a long time now. So I know you as this really talented, fantastic musician and trombone player, but I know where it comes from because you were often the first person there warming up and practicing. In fact, for a while, every time I would come in, you were already on your second hour of practice before the morning rehearsal. You described your parents as blue collar people that instill a work ethic in you. Is that where that comes from? Absolutely. My father woke up every morning at 4 a.m. to go to work and my mother was very hardworking. And I, I would say built into the Southern mentality is this idea of working hard. And I, I don't necessarily agree with this idea at this point in my life, uh, having seen a few things and having a better understanding of the way the world works. But in the South, people truly believe you can do anything you want to do if you just work hard enough. That is a mantra. And I truly believe that. It, it was naive. I know that now. I know the world is not necessarily like that. But I thought I'm behind. I got started late in this game. And I don't play as well as other people. I don't have as much experience as other people. But in my mind, I, I thought if I just outwork everyone else, I'll eventually catch up. It's always been like that. When I was, even when I was an undergrad, even when I was at that music ed major, it would be me and the, the custodian would show up to the school of music, the guy that opened up the door. I just had this mentality. I've got to work hard. I want to do a good job. And for me, doing a good job means making sure that I have effective practice every day. And so I'm really committed to doing that. As you were developing on the trombone, what were the major roadblocks that were in the way? Your biggest obstacles? You know, when you show up to a place that is um, an artistic place with a deep Southern accent, there are assumptions that are made about you. And I'm aware of that. It may not necessarily be true. On the one hand, it's an obstacle, but on the other hand, it's an opportunity for you to just develop your ability to connect people and show them who you are, despite what they may assume about you. So on the one hand, it's an obstacle, but on the other hand, it's an opportunity. So this was my first job. Hopefully it's my last. <laughs> I know you've had a myriad of jobs before this one. Can you take me through the different jobs that you've had and the different parts of the world that they've been in? Okay. Again, my first job was in the Cedar Rapids Symphony Orchestra in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. While I was there, I also toured with the Kenny Paulson Dance Band during the week. This was a band that played like dance band era, like Glenn Miller, Tommy Dorsey kind of charts in all these dance halls all over Iowa, which and it's incredibly popular there, you know. So I was I was a member of that for uh, while I was doing a degree. Uh, I was in the Naples Philharmonic in Naples, Florida for a short period of time, then on the road for two years with this touring show, the Andrew Lloyd Webber show. After that, I was the professor of trombone at the University of Northern Iowa for one year before going to Hong Kong for six years. Now, wait a minute. You say that very casually, but people don't just pick up and go to Hong Kong for six years. How did you even know that that was a possibility and, and, and why did you want to do that? Well, uh, after getting off the road, I went back to Iowa 
and decided to do a doctorate because I, there was nothing else for me to do. And I saw that the Hong Kong Philharmonic, towards the end of my doctorate, had an opening and I was applying for anything that I could get to, I was auditioning for. They were having a satellite audition in Chicago. And so I went to that audition. I applied, went to the audition, played. And this was right at the end of my doctorate. I was also applying for college teaching positions. And I, I was offered this college teaching position at the University of Northern Iowa, a tenure track benefits, all the, all the stuff kind of teaching position. I was offered that, but I was also offered a one-year position in the Hong Kong Philharmonic. That was a sabbatical leave position. My wife and I were thinking about starting a family and we wanted to settle down. One wanted something that was firm. And so I took the college teaching job, but I also told the administration of the Hong Kong Philharmonic, if this becomes a permanent position, I am very interested in having this. So halfway through this teaching year, uh, the Hong Kong Philharmonic reached out and said, hey, the person's not coming back. We want to offer you this full-time job. And I was like, oh, we had just bought a house. We were starting to settle in this little community. But I went to the, my dean. I said, I love my job here, but I've got this opportunity to go play in an orchestra full-time. I really want to try this in Southeast Asia. And he said, okay, I'm going to give you a sabbatical after one year of teaching at this university. But he said, you got to promise me you're going to come back. And I was like, oh, yes, absolutely. I'm coming back. So we rented out our house with all our stuff in it and uh, moved to Hong Kong. I, I think Hong Kong is the greatest city in the world. It's like the New York of that that side of the world. The, it's the financial center of Asia. Uh, so there, there are people from all over the world there. Every kind of food you want to eat, it's it's got a great infrastructure. The trains, the buses are really clean and efficient. Free healthcare. It's really beautiful. The, the skyline is really beautiful. Victoria Harbor is is incredible. Uh, and are there many expats in the orchestra or were you the only were, one? There were a lot, actually, mainly British expats. It was, uh, of course, Hong Kong it is a former British colony. And when I got there, it had just been handed back over to China. As a matter of fact, I played for the five-year anniversary of the handover with all of the top Chinese officials, like five feet in front, in front of me, you know, for the ceremony. This pianist named Yundi Li, I won't ever forget this, that he was suspended in midair on this rotating disc playing Chopin. And for this ceremony, they brought him down. Like Liberace. Yeah, it was like he was an all-white playing Chopin on this rotating disc and sat down right in front of the orchestra. Was the language a severe barrier? Because I have to say, we eat together a lot. But to go to Chinatown and the look on the waitress's face as you speak Chinese is incredible. Plus, we get much better food and much greater <laughs> service. How long did it take you to pick up Chinese? Well, uh, first of all, let me say my, my Cantonese over time is getting worse and worse. But there was a time when I had... I had okay Cantonese. And the reason why I was able to develop that is because my wife, being the person she is, when we moved to that city, we had the choice of living in an area where all of the other expats lived in or to move to an area where no expats lived. And that's what we did. We moved to an, an area called uh, Sha Tin in, in Hong Kong and lived in a building where we were, I mean, I, I would I would go... If I didn't have to go down to the main city and I'd go days, weeks without seeing another non-Chinese person. And so that basically going out to restaurants, you know, going to the grocery store, playing basketball every day. I learned the numbers playing basketball. You know, you got to call out the score. I I learned the numbers doing that. Learned the food going out to restaurants. From and, nothing. 
you hadn't studied Chinese before going. I mean, I, I had connections to Chinese culture before getting to Hong Kong. My first job as a 15-year-old kid growing up in Georgia, I worked in a Chinese restaurant. I, I started as the busboy, then waited on tables, and eventually cooked in a Chinese restaurant and got to know. I practically lived with a family there at the restaurant. I worked there a lot. So that was kind of a connection to Chinese culture. When I was uh, doing my master's degree at University of Iowa, I had two Hong Kong Chinese roommates. Uh, got to know them really well, but I had no, I had not studied Chinese formally. If, if you want to learn a language quickly and uh, thoroughly, just immerse yourself in it. And that's what we did. You know, that's what I did. We lived in an area where you'd be completely lost if you didn't attempt to learn the language. And how long were you there in, in Hong Kong? We were there for six years. Both of my children were born there. My wife had an incredible job teaching at an international school. Did you imagine just staying there indefinitely? I did not think I was going to leave. Yeah. I was, and I was perfectly happy. You know, uh, again, I was sitting in the orchestra. There was a guy in the orchestra who I'd known in Chicago. He was the tempest of the Hong Kong Philharmonic. And one day he comes up to me and he said, you know, I saw that uh, the New York Philharmonic and the Met have openings for bass trombone. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. When, when, that's, when is that ever going to happen? I was happy in Hong Kong, but I thought, I got to do this. You know, this is, I'd be, I'd be an idiot not to just try this, you know. And so I, I did three round trips from Hong Kong to do these auditions. And the Philharmonic, it happened first. I was runner-up for that job. It crushed me. Joe Alessi was my hero. I think he's the greatest trombone player that's ever going to be on planet Earth. And We're talking I, about the principal trombone of the New York Philharmonic. That is correct. Right. Yes, I had grown up idolizing him and was so close to being in this section. And it was so crushing, so depressing not to get that job. So I went back and I told my wife, I don't, I don't want to take another audition. I, we're happy. Let's just do this. Let's just stay here. And she, she wouldn't let me. She said, I want you to take this one last audition. You've got to do it. And so I, I worked up the list. It came, came back here and it, it worked out. So we, we moved to New York and this chapter of the life began. <laughs> so your kids are born in Hong Kong and. They're what, toddlers by the time you move back? A little my, older. My son was two. My daughter was four. And at that time, I had 500 square foot studio apartment. If, if it would not fit in that studio, we sold it. So we basically got rid of everything. I had the custom-made triple queen bunk bed. My wife and I were on the bottom on the floor. My daughter was right above us on the second level, and my son was at the top. It was great. They were young enough. They were young enough that it was workable. You, you talk about all these experiences with your family and the great things that they've seen and the educations that they've had. How does it make you feel that you were able to make that happen playing the trombone? I never lose sight of the fact that my life is happening the way it is because I play the trombone and I try to do my best at it. It's amazing, isn't it? I think it's amazing too. Yeah, absolutely. We're sitting in your studio apartment in New York City. Your family's in Indiana. You're a full professor at Indiana University. You commute back and forth from Indiana where your family is living in your house to New York sometimes four times a week. Give me an idea of your commute to work. I'll wake up at four o'clock in the morning. I'm on the road to the airport by 4.30. There's a 5.45 flight. It's about an hour and 15 minute flight from Indianapolis to Newark. So I'm on the ground by the latest 7, 7.30. 
I'm in this area by 8.30. You know, I yeah, I usually come here, make breakfast, and have a cup of coffee before I go over and warm up for a rehearsal. That's a typical commute here. I sleep really well on airplanes. At this point, I've trained myself. As soon as I get on the airplane, I just put on my noise-canceling headphones, and I just go to sleep. It's so would you say it's somewhat easier than when you were living in New Jersey, dealing with the traffic coming in? It is so much easier. It is so much easier. People that have not done the daily commute in from New Jersey to New York, the, the torture of having to deal with traffic and the uncertainty and aggressive drivers and people that are late and the potholes and the weather and the different functions that happen in Manhattan, you have the UN's in session, all that stuff, man. It is just, there's so much to just think about. And that in and of itself makes you exhausted. You know, my trip from Indiana is easy compared to that. I, I can sleep in the car on the way to the airport. I can sleep on the flight. I can sleep on the train. You know, it's it's all way easier. But I'm very organized, and that's that's how I do it. You have roughly 18 trombone students. A lot of them hopefully will go on to be musicians. A lot of them won't. A lot of them are going to be faced with the same audition situation that you were faced with and carving out a career for them. Yet, we see what the number of openings are, and it's just not enough nearly to sustain the numbers of kids that are going out for this. How do you reconcile that in a real way with your students? That's a great question, and it is it is definitely something that I struggled with teaching. I taught at Juilliard uh, for, I think, six years before moving to Indiana, and it was something I struggled with with teaching at a music conservatory where a person is only being taught how to play in an orchestra, basically, you know, with a little bit of chamber music, but nothing beyond that. In a school like Indiana, with the, the curriculum that a, a person works through during the course of their degree, you pick up life skills that transfer and help you be successful in a lot of other areas. And the skills that they develop, the communication skills, the ability to work well with other people, the work mindset of working hard to achieve a goal, those skills that you develop as a result of getting through a degree like that really transfer to a lot of different things. And my students that don't go on to be in the music business, they, they're successful in other ways as well. I have a student right now that's working in D.C., a consulting firm, have another student that's going to be working in public health. I also have students that have jobs in major orchestras around the world. I really believe in that kind of education. I'm not necessarily against a conservatory education, but the fact is, if you go to Juilliard, you're being trained to do one thing. And if you don't achieve that, you're going to have to scramble. With a degree from a school like Indiana, you develop a, a broader skill set. I guess that's the best way to describe it. How do you teach a student to be as motivated and resourceful as you were coming up. One of my favorite books is called Talent is Overrated. And the premise for this book is basically what we've been talking about, which is that uh, a person that has a, a moderate level of ability that works super hard most of the time will outachieve someone that has incredible talent for a variety of reasons. Uh, a, a huge one being that someone that is super talented lacks the ability to work through problems oftentimes. And when they encounter a problem or something that's difficult, they more often than not just quit and give up. But somebody that has moderate talent, what works hard, develops the grit to work through a problem. And uh, in this book, the, the, the author talks about the fact that social scientists have not figured out 
how to motivate people. Where does motivation come from? They have, they really have not figured that out. And I haven't either, you know, I see with 18, uh, with 18 bass drum old players in my studio, I, I see that book being played out in front of me on a weekly basis in my studio. I have students that have very little ability on the trombone, but incredible grit. I admire how much grit they have because they love music and they love the trombone so much and they want to they want to be great so bad and they're practicing so hard. And then I have other students that have a lot of ability and just for some reason just eh just don't don't want to work that hard. And that I have a couple of students that have incredible ability and work really hard. And it's very exciting to see that process as well. You know, we're both parents. We both have uh, multiple children and we see that in our own kids as well. Despite your best efforts, sometimes it's hard to convince someone that if they just put forth a little more effort, they could achieve something. It's it's you can't force them to do that ultimately. Well, Paul, you're playing as an endless resource of inspiration to me and I think next time I cross over 57th Street, I'm going to look at it a little differently. So thanks for that. Thank you for having me, Dave. Uh, I value your friendship. I value you as a colleague. And uh, I don't feel worthy to be on this podcast. I haven't hit record yet. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. Be sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow me on Instagram at David Krause Trumpet and go to our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com, for show notes, links, and information on all of our guests. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.